our criminal behaviorology. Jared, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, You're you, you sound like a busy man. Can you tell us, uh, I took a little training with your organization. What can you tell us about that? Well, I'm a, I'm a professor, trainer, consultant, and researcher, and I am also the, the founder of the American Institute for the Advancement of Forensic Studies. Mm -hmm. And that's a, basically a professional organization where we offer continuing education trainings to individuals who work in the criminal justice, forensic mental health, human service, and related systems of care. And most of our trainings now are online because of COVID, and we offer a, a number of different topics that have relevance to psychology and mental health. And one of the topics that we do offer a training on is mysopedes, and that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. So I'm definitely honored to be here, and thank you so much for having me be able to be part of your wonderful program. And, th and thank you for reaching out to me, by the way. I'm always mm -hmm. glad to because uh, that's how it went. I'm always glad to meet uh, people interested in this area. I had interviewed y your colleague uh, some time ago, Eric Hickey. Fantastic human being. I've known him for years. So he is uh, is on the our, our podcast about uh, uh, serial killers and necrophilia and other things. And uh, look that one up. Is it, very knowledgeable. So it just seemed like you cover a, a wide range in the area of sex offenders. And this particular topic, let me make sure I say it right, mysopedia? Yeah, I usually just refer to it as mysopedes. But mm -hmm. yeah, you'll sometimes see that referred to as mysopedia. Mm -hmm. uh, and if, you do, if your audience is interested in this topic, I, they can just go online and Google my name and put mysopedes after. And I think we have a couple articles that we've written on this topic too kind of short more practitioner friendly articles as well yeah uh, m-y-s-o-p-e-d yes mysopedes so what is this topic what can you tell us about it well it's it's a type of sexual homicide offender so I think it's important for your audience to to understand just a, a little bit about like sexual homicides in general. Mysopedes are kind of like the extreme end of that spectrum. But if you were to look at just sexual homicides in general, thankfully they are rare. But mm -hmm. however, when one does occur, it creates a lot of fear within that community and it does get a lot of media attention. So when you dig into this research, you're going to find a good, good handful of articles on sexual homicide in general. But what you're going to find quickly is that very little of the sexual homicide literature really focuses on mysopedes. It's a word that's not really known to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And in that sexual homicide literature, really, if you think of mysopedes, they're, they're, again, on the extreme end of things. And they're a type of almost like a sadistic pedophile or a sexually sadistic homicide offender of children. If you look at some of the research literature, if you go pretty deep into this world, around 1% to 4% of all homicides are sexually related. Mm -hmm. But out of that 1% to 4%, only a small, small fraction of that even 1% to 4% involves a sexual homicide of a child. 
and even a smaller amount of that involves a mycopede. So this is a really rare phenomenon, mm -hmm. but it still does happen. And there are a number of documented cases that you'll find in the popular literature. Uh, is this in, I've heard, you hear a lot of different terms. Uh, the term sexual sadist, uh, is this in that realm? Not, it, it gets a little confusing. Mm -hmm. Now, mycopedes, like they pretty much most would be on that spectrum, but most sexual sadists never engage in this kind of behavior. So just for your audience to be aware of that. It does get a little tricky, but most mycopedes obviously have that sadistic element to them, but most people that would fall under that sadistic kind of spectrum do not ever engage in mycopedia type behavior. For uh, the mycopede, then, um, do we have an understanding of, we'll say this uh, loosely, motive? And in specific, like the role of, of fantasy regarding a perpetrator like this. Yeah, I think just to back it up, if it's okay, Tim, mm -hmm. just to give, give folks maybe just a little overview, going a little bit deeper into kind of like, what are the key elements of a mycopede? And okay. they truly have hatred for children. Mm -hmm. they, they, they do not like children. They have violent, sadistic fantasies. We'll talk a little bit about a few case studies today, but they really depersonalize the victim. They, they, they don't see the victim as a human. Some mycopedes may see the victim as just an object or as gar garbage. There's a, a case study we're going to talk about today about Wesley Allen Dodd, and he referred to his victims as garbage. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, most of this research literature or popular media accounts or even some of the criminology books indicate that most mycopedes act alone and most are males which is not surprising mycopedes typically when they commit their crime engage in kidnapping rape of the child torture that eventually ends in murder and unfortunately in some cases the true mycopede may engage in overkill as well but not all mycopedes engage in murder as well. There's different elements of a mycopede. Kind of on that extreme end, they may engage in necrophilia, cannibalism. They may remove parts of the victim's body, unfortunately, and, and keep that as a reminder or a trophy. There's, again, not a lot of empirical-based literature on this term mycopedes, but if you look in some of the criminology books, it is a term that comes up, especially in the older books as well. But if you look at all the literature, the commonalities that come up online, different case studies, they really lean to the fact that the individual is probably going to have, obviously, some level of antisocial behavior. Outside of the crime, they typically have limited contact with children. The case studies I've examined in some of the trainings I've done that I've prepared for over the years a good high percentage of these individuals have had trauma in their history. They typically have like limited social competence. So they might have like lower levels of social skill. In a lot of cases too, they may have had a long history of like fantasizing about harming children. And usually a mycopede is not going to wake up one day and become a mycopede. It's a long process of like mm -hmm. fantasy development. They may have had a long history of being humiliated by people. 
they may have some attachment based problems. So there's a lot of things in the individual's history that I think it's important for us to really be aware of. And unfortunately too, a lot of mysopedes too may have dealt with like profound rejection from family, from friends, from classmates. And over, over the years, they may go inward. They may then start developing an active fantasy life. So there's a lot of layers of trauma, I believe, to this. Some of the case studies I've explored, too. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts, attachment problems. Some of the individuals have had a history of brain injury. Mm -hmm. So it definitely is a, a really important and fascinating topic. A few years ago, just informally, I interviewed a number of different professionals by phone or by email, just really informally, who were like forensic psychologists, sex offender treatment professionals and just kind of ask them about the term mysopedes. What do you know about it? What have you heard? A very high percentage of the individuals I spoke to never even heard the term, even though they're in sex offender treatment. So it's a confusing term. Some people have referred to a mysopede as the, the most heinous, extreme, violent kind of sexual predator there is. And again, a a core component of a mysopede you're going to want to keep in mind is the fact that fantasy development early on in life, particularly like deviant fantasy, is very, very common among these individuals. And unfortunately, a lot of these individuals, obviously with their trauma histories, grew up in very dysfunctional, inconsistent, violent households for some of them as well. Some mysopedes have substance use histories, some do not. Some appear to be on the psychopathy spectrum. Others, it, it's, it's difficult to say. But a lot of the professionals I spoke to as well just really believe it's somewhat rooted in really bad brain wiring, attachment, trauma. It's tough to know how many of these individuals have also had like prenatal trauma. But I suspect in some cases, obviously, you want to look not just what was going on early in childhood, but what was going on in utero during pregnancy as well. So a lot of layers to this to take into account. And not to get yeah, not to get too far off the mark, but you mentioned psychopathy, that condition. What what are your thoughts on a, on on that idea? So it's a person without a, a conscience. It's really become a common word nowadays whenever we discuss this. Just what what's your reaction to that term? Confusion. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of stereotypes. There, there's different subsets of psychopathy. Some fall on a spectrum. I think a lot of people think too that if someone has true psychopathy, they're always going to be violent, and mm -hmm. that that's not necessarily mm -hmm. the case for everyone. And again, is every mysopede on that psychopathy spectrum? It's tough to say. I, we just don't have the data. Some absolutely appear to be, and some do not appear to be. So it is, it is a very interesting and controversial topic, psychopathy, and it brings a lot of confusion, I think, to the field. Okay, uh, so for um, a mysopede, when they're committing their crimes uh, in that period of their life, what is their environment look like? Are, are any of them, do the, uh, is it likely that they will be fathers, uh, parents themselves? Will they have relations? Will they be married? What would their life look like? Well, if you look at the general sexual homicide literature, that literature points to the fact that sexual homicide offenders 
are more likely to not be married, not have a lot of intimate relationships. Mm -hmm. If we look at some of the mycelpede case studies, there have been some that have been fathers, a good chunk have not been fathers and a good chunk have not been married and a really good chunk as well have come from environments where it's been dysfunctional. So I think when we look at that, really looking through a trauma lens and considering early childhood experiences is so important. Now, the majority of people that have grown up in really dysfunctional traumatic upbringings never grow up to do these kind of behaviors, but a high percentage of mycelpedes, at least from the cases we've, we've dug into, have had histories of not feeling valued or respected early on in life, lots of rejection, high levels of shame, abandonment, just not feeling loved or wanted, some histories of being bullied and teased. So we really want to look at rejection history. I think when you're working with any, any type of offender-based population, I think it's going to be helpful to look at any kind of rejection history, even perceived rejection, ruling out any childhood trauma. When people are dealing with some of these issues, and if you just take mycelpedes out of the equation, if people have had extensive trauma histories, high levels of shame, lots of rejection, that in and of itself can impact brain development. It can fracture attachment. It can contribute to self-control issues. It can exacerbate mental health problems. It can really contribute to that person's ability to, to manage stress. And in some cases, let's say if someone had a long history of being rejected, they may start pushing the outside world away, not trust people, and really go inward and almost psychologically retreat, and which then can be a factor for an increase in a really active fantasy world. Now, fantasy in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but for mycelpedes, their fantasy world often includes homicidal thinking, hurting children, really dysfunctional belief patterns. And over time, though that fantasy world can grow and grow and grow. And eventually, in some cases, that person may act out their fantasy. How many people do that? We just don't know. How many people have these just really delusional or homicidal thoughts of hurting children and not acting on them? We just don't know. But we do know it does happen from time to time. And I think when we think of rejection as well, really considering any history of humiliation as well, I think that's really important. Humiliation could be a obviously a form of trauma. And some of these mycelpede case studies, they've had not only a history of rejection, but a history of humiliation. And on top of that, some of them have also had a history of abandonment, mm -hmm. maybe being abandoned by a caregiver being thrusted into some sort of orphanage setting. So really looking at any history of loss, abandonment, just feeling rejected by caregivers, not feeling wanted, not feeling loved, just being discarded by the world. Those are just a few factors I would consider really through a trauma and somewhat through an attachment-based lens. Mm. Well, it does sound like uh, if they have not had anything close to a healthy adult child uh, experience themselves, they're not going to have that in their own adult life when, when they're functioning as adults. 
I, I do agree. But again, what what is the what's that driving factor for some? Because there's so many people that have had those mm-hmm. tough experiences in life, but again, they never grow up and do these kind of heinous crimes that mycopenes do. But if we were to look at like triggering factors, even just through the general sexual homicide literature. Mm-hmm. What are some triggering factors that could trigger a potential individual who is on the spectrum, who has these violent, deviant fantasies of hurting children to actually act on them? The research literature points to the fact that isolation could be a factor, rejection, being ridiculed, self-esteem issues need to be taken into account, substance misuse, alcohol intoxication, any unresolved trauma, unresolved psychiatric types of issues. How does the person handle criticism? How do they handle unresolved conflict? All of these things need to be taken into account, but it's likely a combination of like biological factors, psychological, Mm -hmm. environmental, social, family. It's probably not just one factor to take into account. It's usually a combination and kind of that perfect storm that thankfully most people don't ever reach that point. But when they do, obviously that can wreak havoc and create tons of trauma and fear and hardship in a community for generations. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pursue that, what what you just said here in a little bit, but I do want to ask, we, we, we had talked about uh, in previous conversations, the distinction of this, of this classification, for example, from pedophilia, uh, or the or, or I should say maybe the overlap with uh, with such a disorder. What's your response to that? The connection with pedophilia. Well, some you, if you go in the literature, you'll sometimes see topics like talked about like sadistic pedophiles. Mycopenes mm-hmm. would probably be on the most extreme end of a sadistic pedophile. They have true hatred for children. They have no attachment, no bond. So that's kind of the best differentiation between like general pedophilia and a mycopene. The overwhelming majority of people who engage in pedophilic-based behaviors never reach anywhere near the level of a mycopene. And most people who engage in pedophilia, they may not have true hatred for children. They may, some may truly love children as well. So that's kind of the, the best and easiest way to differentiate the two. How, what about, uh, um, somebody like, uh, the, the infamous, um, John Wayne Gacy, uh, out of Chicago, near Chicago, would, would he fit this classification or is it really very difficult to tell in a case like that? To be honest, I have, I obviously know the case. I have not dug into the intricate details of him per se when I've given these talks. It's more really focused like on Albert Fish, mm-hmm. Wesley Allen Dodd. Those are the kind of the big two that you'll find consistently discussed within the context of Mycopedia. But I think definitely for a future mm-hmm. podcast, that would be a really mm-hmm. interesting case study to look into. Absolutely, but I would not feel comfortable kind of linking him directly to mycopedes right now without really digging into his childhood history more and his behavioral patterns. This, in the classification of mycopedia, then knowing childhood history, knowing uh, some factors about them becomes pertinent, becomes necessary to really define them in that way? 
Absolutely, because again, a mycopete is not born or created overnight. It's usually a process over a long period of time. There are many things, typically, when you look back in the case studies or the case history, particularly like Albert Fish and Wesley Allen Dodd, there were a lot of different factors, behavioral patterns, circumstances, and events that likely contributed to them actually engaging in homicide eventually later on in life. So a lot of different factors to take into account. So looking at family history, early childhood experiences, how things progressed over time, Mm -hmm. because like Albert Fish, Wesley Allen Dodd, there were many instances of criminal behavior and aggressive behavior or criminal activity against children before they actually finally engaged in, in murder of a child. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm fantasy, glad. You mentioned fantasy. Fantasy was a, is a big part, really digging into fantasy, fantasy development, when it started, how it progressed. Mm-hmm. So fantasy development, a huge factor for some of these individuals. And again, looking at, is there a history of sadistic like sexual fantasies where the person is starting to fantasize about mutilating the genitals of a child? Obviously, those are things to be very concerned about, and earlier invention would be key. And maybe there's a a previous history of the individual really engaging in a criminal activity that was based on fantasy, but maybe the fantasy didn't involve like homicidal thinking. Maybe they acted on some other type of fantasy. That could be a red flag indicator where maybe earlier intervention could play a, a key role. Mm-hmm. And when somebody engages in really dark, violent, sadistic fantasies, especially at the mycopede level, really looking at any history of like abnormal bonding with a relative or family member. So looking at it through an attachment theory lens, that's I kind of look through that lens as well, because a lot of this has to do with like attachment disruptions, insecure attachments, dysregulated attachments. And as this progresses, then could this be a triggering event? What was the triggering event? How did they get from the point of actually fantasizing about hurting children or wanting to murder children to actually acting on it? And that's why some of those triggering events I mentioned before are very important to take into account as well. So the uh, the analysis of it, to me, is a little bit different and uh, than maybe a, a typical, just a, a psychiatric diagnosis. We're looking at this as kind of like a, an unfolding event that has some, that has some uh, seeds early in life, uh, that has some factors, perhaps genetically, physiologically, and then some circumstances now uh, that results in the full manifestation of the behavior. Yeah, I tend, when I look at these cases, I I really tend to look through like a neurocriminology lens or like Mm -hmm. a neuro brain bio, kind of the biochemistry, Mm -hmm. psycho, like psychology and social lens and family lens. Because again, there's a lot of moving parts with this and it's, it's usually not just one thing. Mm -hmm. And again, most people, even with all of these behavioral patterns, never reach the level of a mycopede. What is that driving factor? And I'm really digging deep into this and I'm trying to figure that out. And I don't know if we could ever figure out what is that one driving factor for mm-hmm. mycopedes. It's usually, again, that combination of factors. 
Well, and behaviorologically, uh, it all comes down to what is the stimulus control. Uh, And uh, that can be very, like you you said very well, that can be very difficult to determine with all these different factors. Absolutely. So one thing, can I say one more thing about fantasy? I just remembered Mm -hmm. with fantasy again, fantasy in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing because fantasy can help like daydreaming processing fantasy for some people Mm -hmm. can be a safe, very powerful form of like coping with something. So it could be a coping strategy, but what happens if someone grew up in a home, tons of trauma, adversity, hardship, they had no one to turn to. Maybe their parents were extremely abusive. Maybe that child was exposed to violent forms of pornography early on in life. Maybe that child was sexually abused. Maybe there were just some unbearable trauma that child dealt with and they never were able to turn to an adult figure. That child turns inward. Fantasy in some cases then over time Mm-hmm. It becomes a coping strategy, but then it develops into a maladaptive coping strategy where they're consistently going inward, they're fantasizing, they're trying to escape reality, and then eventually those fantasies turn into like thinking about hurting people. Maybe as they get older, they're more exposed to more violent forms of imagery or something mm-hmm. online, and they see something or hear something, and it just grows and grows and grows. And that fantasy becomes very sadistic in nature. And then eventually, in some cases, the only way for them to regulate their mood state and control their emotions, they act out that fantasy almost like an addictive tendency. And then it brings them back Mm -hmm. to baseline. They feel regulated for a period of time. And then all of those negative thoughts, feelings go inward again, and it grows and grows and grows. That's how it could play out in some cases as well. Mm -hmm. Well, very good. Very good description um then of this of this phenomenon of the individual cases you had written with a couple other a few other authors contributors psychology here's one example psychology of albert fish and i'd like to uh read just a little bit of the abstract if i could first absolutely and um because uh a lot of people have heard of this case, but maybe not everyone. But having reportedly victimized hundreds of children in the early 1900s, Albert Fish's abhorrent paraphilic crimes have been the subject of research for the better part of a century. Presently, much conjecture exists as to whether Fish's crimes were the result of familial mental illness, like nature, or environmental abuses suffered as a child we've got in nurture in parentheses however it is possible that the etiology of fish's atrocities stem from both biological and environmental factors outlined here in this piece in this article so what can you tell us about the the infamous uh, albert fish case probably one of the more prolific serial killers of in american history there are so many blog sites and documentaries and things written about him it's tough to know what's accurate and what's not but he would be considered a sadistic pedophile Mm -hmm. a mycelopede a child molester he's been referred to as a rapist a cannibal and he everything we've learned about him 
he holds the record for the most documented paraphilias among a serial killer. Mm -hmm. He had almost every documented type of paraphilia of that time. So he... Let, let me let me pause you there. Uh, when yeah. we say a paraphilia, what are we talking about? Kind of just like unusual sexual behaviors, mm -hmm. abnormal things that are outside of the norm. Um, he enjoyed having needles stuck into mm -hmm. to him. He enjoyed being beat. There's some evidence to support the fact that he enjoyed having like cloth or like cotton balls stuffed into his body cavities and lit on fire mm -hmm. very extreme behaviors where early on in life he dealt with a lot of trauma and somehow in his mind i think he his brain connected the dots that pain and pleasure are equated with one another so mm -hmm. that is just something for your audience to think about is he had an extensive trauma history mm-hmm and the this when we say paraphilia is here it's it's beyond just what more normally like fetishes fetishes or things like that this is getting to some really uh to most people's minds pretty bizarre stuff it, on the very extreme end because not all paraphilias are like criminal in nature mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. he took it to the extreme end this is the most extreme case i think you could find so, so please go ahead. I like your description of Albert Fish. Absolutely. So if your audience wants some other search terms, he's been referred to as the gray man, mm -hmm. the werewolf of Wisteria. He's been referred to as the Brooklyn vampire, the boogeyman. Mm -hmm. The list goes on. So he's got a lot of different names that were used to describe him early on in some of the writings and the newspaper articles about him. So depending, take this with a grain of salt because there's not, obviously some of these things are in newspapers and by mm -hmm. Fish's own account. So we don't know for sure if it's 100% accurate, but he had a history of multiple arrests, passing bad checks, stalking, larceny, prostitution, abduction, murder, strangulation, cannibalism. We don't know when his murders officially started. There is some evidence that he might have molested over 400 children over 20 years. But again, we just don't know the exact number. He confessed to six murders, but referred to multiple other murders. So again, we don't know how many people he actually murdered. If we look at Fish's life, lots of mental health issues. This is where the mm -hmm. family component comes in here and the biological component. I want to spend a minute just talking about that biological component, but most of Fish's immediate family members dealt with profound mental health problems. There's evidence to support the fact that his mo mother suffered from auditory and visual hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Multiple other members of his family, including his siblings, had alcohol problems. They were in institutions. His father was several years older, several decades older than his mother. So what factor does that play in? When Fish was really young at the age of five, his dad dropped dead of a heart attack. And this is where I want your audience to think, I don't have any evidence to prove this, but his dad worked supposedly as a riverboat captain and in like a fertilizer manufacturing kind of facility. I do a lot of work in the area of like psychoneuroimmunology mm -hmm. and you know that 
different types of environmental toxins can have a huge impact on human health and our endocrine system. Was his father working in a fertilizer plant and exposed to all kinds of chemicals? What factor did that have on birth outcomes for Albert Fish? We don't know, but it's something, a red flag for me to be on the lookout for. After Fish died, his mother didn't have a lot of money and she placed him in an orphanage at a very young age. And I think this was the driving factor for a lot of Fish's problems later on in life. Obviously, a lot of other layers, but in that orphanage, he was exposed to horrific acts of violence and torture by other students. He was abused by teachers. At this time, he started developing erections after getting beat. So he started connecting mm -hmm. pain with pleasure. I believe at the age of seven, his mother was able to get a job and have enough money to pull him out of the orphanage, but he was there for close to two years. So he sustained tons and tons of humiliation and even shame-based punishing. Mm -hmm. Shortly after, I believe, I, I think it's around the age of seven, don't quote me on this, there is evidence to support the fact that Fish fell out of a tree and actually hit his head and sustained traumatic brain injury. After that time, it sounds like he had permanent kind of headaches and dizzy spells. Most people with brain injuries don't ever do these things, but now we have a brain injury on top of an extensive trauma history, on top of an extensive family mental health history, father dying at a young age, fish going to an orphanage. So we got a lot of layers going on already early on in life. As he got older, he started developing hallucinations. He actually was married for a period of time and his wife left him. So after his wife left him, I think that was a triggering event. Some evidence supports the fact where the wife left him for another man. So he felt humiliated. Mm -hmm. He started obsessing more and just really spiraled out of control. So if we were to look at kind of just a broad spectrum overview of his life, looks like we have a genetic predisposition to serious mental health issues because almost every immediate family member had severe mental health issues. Mm -hmm. We had an extensive trauma history. And one thing I didn't mention, one of his siblings died at a young age too. So now we have a sibling death. Mm -hmm. He was bullied really bad by other kids. His dad died at an early age. He had an abandonment and rejection history. He had marital problems. His wife left him. So lots of things going on and the head injury problem, probably attachment issues. Was he, was his father exposed to like fertilizer, environmental toxins? And did that contribute to some issues with birth outcomes? And was there any prenatal trauma history? We just don't know that. I really have dug deep and I can't find any mention of what was going on in utero. Obviously at that time, not good records and so on, but a lot of layers here to take into account with his life, not just one factor. The issue of uh, like a, a chemical neurotoxin uh, and or a head injury, that seems to be one that keeps coming up with uh, serial killers uh, of different kinds. I think uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, his father, was, uh, was a chemist or worked in uh, like a chemical plant. 
Others had had uh, John Wayne Gacy had a head injury. Uh, the, do you think that that is? Uh, it's very difficult, I know, to discern all the uh, factors that are important. But do, do you notice that in studies with some of these uh, kind of bizarre, violent crimes? In some, yes. Uh-huh. Again, not all serial killers have had head injury histories. I do a ton of trainings on head injuries in general. Most people who've sustained a head injury are going to be law-abiding citizens Uh and never, ever, ever come anywhere close to engaging in these kind of behaviors. But if you look at extreme offender populations, there is research to support the fact that frontal lobe injuries to the brain, executive functioning impairments Uh are more common in this population. So it is something to consider. It's not the only variable, but again, if someone has problems, brain-based problems, their frontal lobes aren't working properly, that can impact decision-making, problem-solving, reasoning, judgment. It has a huge impact on self-control and self-esteem and mental health. So, so many layers to take into account, but anyone who's working in the criminal justice field Mm -hmm. or mental health arena, you would benefit from getting training on traumatic brain injury in general. Of course, it's written here, and you'd mentioned before, um, uh, as asserted uh, during an interview and confirmed by uh, x-ray exam at the time of his capture, Fish had lodged approximately 30 needles between his scrotum and anus, and the effect of this, uh, I'd read previous reports where it short-circuited the electric chair when he was executed. That's the report being made, yes. I mean, that again is the extreme, extreme end of like unusual, bizarre, deviant times of behavior. And this is just my theory again. Early on in life, he started to equate physical pain with pleasure. Mm -hmm. So trauma, through that trauma lens, really needs to be taken into account, obviously with Albert Fish. Okay, on to another way. So closer to modern times, and I haven't done uh, as much reading on this one, but I do remember this case. Uh, Wesley Dodd, West, I think it's Wesley Allen Dodd. But what can you tell us about that one in through the lens of the mycepede? He was born in 1961, mm-hmm. and he was born into a family where just not any love he at Mm -hmm. least claims doesn't sound like at least from his reports there was direct like physical or sexual abuse anything like that going on in the Mm -hmm. family but he just indicated there was no love no one gave hugs people were unloving and cold he was the oldest of three children and his father from the accounts just in the newspapers and different articles and documentaries His father drove a dairy truck. His mother was a stay-at-home mom. They had some different moves. Dodd does report that his parents did a lot of arguing and fighting in front of the kids. And at an early age, Dodd's parents divorced. And at that time, that's when Dodd started molesting other kids. Mm -hmm. And he did indicate that even though maybe he didn't get exposed to direct abuse on him, he heard a lot of criticism. And a lot of just kind of maybe indifference from the parents. And as he grew up, he had a history of pedophilia. Um, He had a history of being bullied by other kids. There's still not a lot of accounts of like 
high school years, but things that I've come across, it sounds like he didn't have any photo in his senior yearbook picture. So what was going on there? Not a lot of things to know about him at that time. He did have numerous contacts with law enforcement and several arrests. And Dodd, even in his own words, when he was interviewed by like media and different evaluators, he mentioned that there were several opportunities along the way to have prevented his actions. Mm-hmm. He started exposing himself supposedly at the age of 13 to other kids. And then he was actually in the Navy for a period of time, but was discharged from the mm-hmm. Navy for a number of different problems related to this. He had a long history. It sounds like going to therapy. So he, he did have contact with mental health professionals and he had a lot of obsessional interest deviant fantasies dreaming behavior he got a high from actually killing so he eventually progressed over a long period of time of engaging in these other kinds of crimes and fantasies where it actually eventually progressed into murder so again long history of fantasy development some history of being bullied different than fish it was a different kind of kind of trauma but dad was bullied and just not having that love or secure attachment. And Dodd even said to different evaluators, I'm not sure who, but he said he just felt like he was born himself without having any feeling whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He had intimacy deficits, so he had a hard time talking to people his own age. Mm-hmm. So he, he felt, it sounds like he felt more comfortable talking to younger kids but he used that obviously to the negative and did a lot of manipulating and mm-hmm. conning them into doing not so good things obviously and he betrayed the trust of multiple children cousins it sounds like maybe his father had girlfriends after he got divorced and the girlfriend had some children that died possibly molested as well So lots of different people that he had contact with, including kids that resulted in some really problematic outcomes for him. He abducted kids, uh, like total strangers. Eventually he did. He had a tendency, like typically a mycelopede is not going to abduct a child. They know again, every case is different, but overall, most mycelopedes, at least from the case studies we've explored, typically target kids where kids frequent playgrounds, amusement parks, movie theaters, Mm -hmm. and they abduct them at force. Mm -hmm. And they really get a high, unfortunately, from the terror Mm -hmm. that that child has from the individual. And then unfortunately, with Dodd, he engaged in just horrific acts on a handful of children. Eventually, he was caught and executed but during that time in prison he gave plenty of interviews if you go to youtube you can actually hear Mm -hmm. him talk on different interviews and it's a disturbing fascinating case study that i think anyone working in the realm of like deviant criminal behavior should study wesley ellen dodd and albert fish because obviously they're on the most extreme end of the spectrum but if we can learn about the extreme end of the spectrum Hopefully that'll help us better understand other types of problematic behaviors that other people might deal with on a lower end spectrum and intervene and provide supports and services early on in life where hopefully they don't ever reach this point. Uh, And Dodd wanted to be executed? 
by all accounts yes yeah. he's basically far as i know said that that's the only way you're going to basically keep me from doing this again and keeping kids safe yeah he, he said he'll do anything to escape and go right back to it if they don't execute him yeah and they did execute him yes how do you get involved? Uh, what motivates you to be involved in uh, studies of something like this? I'm just fascinated by human behavior. Uh-huh. Again, I'm a professor. I do a lot of teaching classes related to human behavior, abnormal psychology, forensic behavioral health. And I'm really fascinated by the field of neurocriminology, where it's really, think of it as like biosocial criminology where it's taking into account basically the neurobiological kind of basis or roots of criminal behavior, mm-hmm. looking at genetics, physiology, biochemistry, neuroimaging, psychology, and really combining all of that. And I thought, what better way to learn this by examining some of the most deviant, heinous kinds of human behavior? And I'm trying to write articles on this, develop more training programs, and really trying to bring this knowledge to as many helping professionals as possible. Because if we can better understand this, I think we're going to be in a better position to help people, improve functioning, keep people, communities safer. And I think it really can aid in the prevention of violence. It can help better understand the biopsychosocial causes or contributing factors of criminal behavior in general. And if you can really understand the neurocriminology research, you're going to be in a much better position Mm -hmm. to understand unreasonable behavior, inappropriate behavior, confusing behavior, and even irrational behavior, just to name a few. In your, uh, as we've talked about, when we're dealing with a problem that is multifactorial, so we've got all, all these different things you mentioned, immunology, neurology, the environment, um, the, the growing up process. Uh, if you can understand, because it is multifactorial, if you can understand just one of those areas, intervene effectively, and you may stop this entire process or at least reduce the severity of it significantly. That would be the goal. We never Mm -hmm. can know 100%, but the more we can become informed and educated about Mm -hmm. these topics, and there's not going to be any one professional who's going to know all of these things, but you as a professional, if you know at least enough to know that this could be an issue, finding other professionals to consult with, refer to, seek out more guidance, training, I think we're going to be in a much better position to understand the brain and behavior and how the functions and structure of the brain relate to this, being aware of like neurotransmitter functioning and the nervous system and Mm -hmm. even the gut. There's a lot going on in the the gut that relates to behavior, the gut-brain health access, being aware of like the vagus nerve, polyvagal theory. I've been doing a lot of trainings now in the area of psychoneuroimmunology, understanding how the immune system factors into this or the endocrine system or even something called the HPA axis, which is called the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Those are all topics I would encourage any helping professional criminologist, neuropsychologist, mental health person to at least know the basics on because it Mm -hmm. does, again, help better understand human behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the multifactorial and then the need for all these different professions to become aware, uh, we kind of, I think, 
we tend to look at that in uh, just be in awe of it. Oh, this is just too big a problem. But in a way, uh, looking at it like that uh, can help us potentially resolve it, uh, not just with mycopedes, but crime in general, social problems, um, educational problems, all, all things like that. Absolutely. And even health behaviors, uh-huh. improving our health or wellness or functioning, how we approach clients, how we approach ourselves, just better understanding of human behavior in general, I think can lead to really positive societal outcomes. Very good. Jared, we, we covered, uh, I, I think I kept you longer than the 45 minutes, but, uh, uh that That's we okay. agreed to, but I, uh, where do you where do you think you go next with a study of an area like this? I think I'll, I'll, my colleague and I are actually doing a training coming up. I think it's next month where we're going to do a three hour training on a neurobiopsychosocial case analysis of Albert Fish. Okay. And we're digging deep into that, and we're going to actually incorporate the R and R model into that too, the risk needs responsivity model, which I'm sure if you're working in prison or a probation officer, you know that model. So we're going to see how that goes. And if that goes well, I might replicate that and do something very similar with Wesley Allen Dodd. Mm-hmm. We could get into some other high-profile case studies and start really digging deep into these case studies and then start really breaking them down. What are the most commonalities we're seeing? And maybe engaging some researchers out there who are wanting to take this to that next level. If there's students listening in here or researchers, mm-hmm. I think there's ample opportunity to take this to the next level and start developing even a better understanding of these topics. Then hopefully it tri- trickles down into informing intervention, screening, policy, decision-making, prevention strategies. Mm-hmm. That's my goal, all of those things. Ultimately, obviously I can't do it alone. I definitely always open to hearing from other folks how to take this to the next level. Uh, the different professions get together and ultimately get to a good uh, prevention strategy. That'd be great. Okay. Very good. Jared, really appreciate it. Uh, all the work you're doing and all the effort you're doing to inform people. And uh, if we have some links to put on with the podcast, I'm going to put your organization on there because I've taken the training on there and uh, it's quite valuable. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you and your audience. Okay. Until next time, I hope we can follow up, Jared. Absolutely. Bye-bye. This has been Criminal Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.